Welcome to Audio Helicase, the podcast from Whitehead Institute, where we unwind the science and the people behind some of the Institute's most exciting discoveries. We think of some diseases as genetic and other diseases as transmitted through a pathogen, like a virus or bacteria. But it's not always so black and white. There are many conditions in which your DNA sequence can raise or lower your risk of developing a disease on a sliding scale. Whitehead fellow Olivia Corridan has developed a new approach to investigating disease genetics that can help reveal previously hidden mechanisms for how diseases operate in specific locations in the body. I'm Connor Guerin, digital media specialist at Whitehead Institute. In this episode, we'll talk to Corridan about her new technique called the outside variant approach and how it can reveal the genetic underpinnings of conditions that have remained a mystery to scientists, including multiple sclerosis, an autoimmune and neurodegenerative disease. We'll also hear her thoughts on running a lab during the COVID-19 pandemic and her suggestions on how to evaluate new scientific studies and knowing which sources to trust. Corridan earned her PhD at Case Western Reserve University in the lab of Peter Skicheri. She's the Scott Cook and Signe Ostby Fellow at Whitehead Institute. As a Whitehead Fellow, she runs her own lab and conducts independent research while still an early career scientist. Olivia, welcome to Audio Helicase. Can you start us off by talking about what your lab is focused on right now? Uh, yeah, so my lab um, is a human genetics lab. So what we're most interested in is understanding the genetic components behind human diseases. Um, so what we particularly focus on is those genetic variants that alter the genome but don't directly affect proteins. So these are DNA variants that occur outside of genes, which makes up only 2% of your, of your genome. Uh, so we are really interested in how those can still um, work to have an effect on disease, even though they're not directly affecting a protein's function. Right, which brings up something that might be a source of confusion, which is that when we say disease is genetic, some people might think of that as a binary, that a disease either is or isn't genetic. Is there a better way of thinking about genetics and disease risk? Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, people tend to think that when you say something is genetic, that means it's fully determined by your genome and nothing else. Uh, but actually, most of the diseases we talk about are going to be a complex relationship between your genetics and your environment, your lifestyle choices, and even things like what happened to your mother while you were in utero. Uh, so it's really a, a complex relationship between these variables. And so what we think about most often is genetic risk factors. So what genetic variants you have that might make you more likely to develop a trait, but it doesn't mean that developing that particular trait or disease is predetermined. It just puts you at a greater risk of it happening. Um, the one that is easiest for most people to understand is sort of the relationship between um, genetics, lifestyle, and obesity. So yes, there are genetic factors that put you at greater risk, but there are also lifestyle factors that can put you at lower risk. So it's really a combination of all of these um, contributors that will, in the end, uh, define your, your um, status. How did you first get interested in studying how genetics affect disease risk? So, um, you know, I started back in undergrad in a fruit fly lab, which I think is where a lot of geneticists get started. It's a really great way to really see genetics in action. Um, so when I went to graduate school, um, I sort of found a surprise new love, which was understanding the whole genome. Uh, so really thinking about how one DNA template can make for a huge amount of diversity in the human population. 
um, how one DNA template can make your brain cell function as well as your blood cells function. Um, and so that led me into a, a big data problem, right? So if you're talking about trying to understand the whole genome, you need to develop a whole new set of skills. Um, and that involves interpreting and analyzing really large data sets. Um, so it sort of shifted me a bit from molecular genetics into studying genomics and more computational biology. Uh, and I just ended up really loving that. Uh, I actually joined a lab that um, I, I never expected to in graduate school um, and studying sort of epigenetics of cancer, which is um, understanding how um, the shape of the genome changes um, in different individuals. And that led us to this problem of we just have such little ability to understand how changes outside of genes contribute to disease. Um, and so that's where I really found um, my, my greatest passion and really started pushing forward to understand how changes in that area of the genome can really have an effect. When scientists try to uncover the genetic components of a disease, there's a particular type of study they can do called a Genome-Wide Association Study, or GWAS. Could you describe what this approach entails and uh, what kind of data it provides? Yeah, absolutely. So Genome-Wide Association Studies have been around for about a decade, um, just over a decade. They are um, by far the most common approach that we use to understand genetics underlying um, complex traits. Um, by that, we mean things like schizophrenia, multiple sclerosis, even height we would consider a complex trait. Uh, so we're trying to uh, understand what genetic variants might or changes contribute to these different traits. And the way this is done is, is actually relatively simple on the surface. You just take a large group of people that have a particular trait and a large group of people who don't. And then you start looking at genetic variants for differences. Uh, this gets complicated really fast when you start talking about the fact that these people have different lifestyle choices, they have grown up in different environments, they may come from different ancestries, and so we have more complex models that allow us to account for some of these variables. But the in the end, it's really the sheer number of people. We just collect huge numbers in order to see what variables, what different genetic variants have an effect beyond all of these confounding variables. A lot of the variants that we talk about are pretty common in the human population. So they don't necessarily um, cause a negative effect. They're just what makes us different. Um, and so the, the sort of gen the general variation of that's possible and inherited from your parents is what we talk about. So you developed a new approach to look at something called outside variants. Can you describe the method and what it adds to GWAS? Yeah, so what's been so successful about GWAS is that they've just found so many genetic variants that associate with disease. So we're talking about millions of different genetic variants that have been associated with thousands of different human traits and diseases. Uh, so we've been like the field has been incredibly good at finding these variants. But that really only takes us so far. We've been trying to figure out like what these variants actually are doing that makes them more likely to increase your risk of developing a disease. Uh, my favorite analogy is a genetic game of Clue. Uh, so you have a suspect, uh, but you have no idea what the weapon is and you don't know where in the body um, this effect is happening or what room this is happening in. So what the outside variant approach does, it really focuses on trying to figure out what part of the body is affected by this genetic variant in a way that contributes to the disease pathogenesis. So a little bit more detail about how the outside variant approach works. It's um, 
really looking at three-dimensional interactions of your DNA. So um, in the genome, you know, your, your genome isn't just a line, right? It's, it's, it's compacted into the nucleus. Um, and so we take advantage of that 3D shape to help us study a particular genetic variant. Um, so we look at not just what um, the genetic variant is, but all the genetic variants that touch and interact physically with that particular variant. And then we ask if those additional DNA changes make you more or less likely to develop the disease. And so that gives us, instead of just having one data point, we'll end up with somewhere around 10 to 100 data points that can now tell us about the particular uh, region of the DNA. Uh, and so that gives us this much more deep information that we can compare to different cell types and say, well, maybe one variant is important across all of the cell types we're interested in. But if you look at all 20 of them, mo all of them act in the brain, but only one of them acts in the blood. Uh, so we can start taking advantage of these 3D interactions to um, get this extra information, um, all by looking at small changes. You start with maybe a 50% increase in your risk of developing a disease, and then we ask if that can be just modified um, by a small amount um, of particular DNA variant. So for example, when you're studying, we study a disease like multiple sclerosis, and this is um, an autoimmune disease, but it's also a neurodegenerative disease. So it affects both your immune system and your neuronal system. So what we want to do is figure out whether, you know, if we know a particular DNA variant is contributing to disease, we don't know if it's because it's altering your T cells or if it's altering a neuron. Um, and so what this approach does is focuses in on that problem um, and identifies some additional DNA variants that contribute to the effect. Um, and so by looking at some of these more nuanced, um, small modifier changes, we can start looking at um, what cell type is most important and start moving like our hundreds of DNA variants that we've associated with a trait into categories and figure out which ones are affecting the immune system, which ones are affecting the brain. And that helps us reveal patterns. So if we look at just the variants that are affecting the brain, we reveal things that we might have missed if we looked at all the variants together. You've been able to apply the outside variant approach to learn more about multiple sclerosis, or MS. So first of all, what is MS, and why is it that parts of its biology remain a mystery? MS is um, it's an autoimmune disease, so it involves a patient's own um, immune system mistakenly recognizing self for bad, um, and so it actually leads to the, your immune system attacking a part of your brain called myelin, which is this protective layer um, that wraps around your neurons. Um, and that helps um, your, the signals in the brain to move very quickly, um, which is really important for a, a complex system like the human body. Uh, so what happens in MS patients is this myelin layer, this protective layer starts to degrade over time. And that leads to these neurological symptoms. Um, but what's interesting about MS is that the patient's symptoms tend to um, occur and then um, remit. So they'll, they'll have periods of time of severe symptoms and then periods of remission. 
Um, and so the, and that's a complex interplay between the immune system attacking myelin and this myelin being repaired. Um, and so a lot of the difficulties in studying a disease like this is that what day you look at the patient is going to affect what kind of data you're collecting. And so understanding how two systems, two complex systems, the immune system and the nervous system, interplay um, to cause this disease is it's what led to um, so many challenges to, to furthering our understanding of it. And what did the outside variant approach reveal about MS? So using the outside variant approach, um, we really focused in on the cell types. So when you think about um, MS genetics, um, when we look at all of the results um, from genetic studies, we would conclude that MS is mostly an autoimmune disease. So if we look at the um, hundreds of DNA variants that have been shown to increase your risk of developing MS, we would predict most of them to affect the immune system. Um, And so many that we couldn't find any that affected the nervous system. And so knowing that the pathology of the disorder involves this interplay between the immune system attack and the brain responding, but none of the genetic variants seem to be affecting the brain, Um, That makes it really hard for us to understand what are the factors in the brain that we need to improve upon in order to help patients. Um, So the outside variant approach looked at each locus, each genetic variant associated with disease independently. So we just took one of these sites at a time and analyzed them at a greater depth um, and evaluated which of those were more likely to affect the brain. And so when we did that, we found a couple of um, genetic changes that appeared to be altering function of a special cell type called the oligodendrocytes. Um, So these cells are responsible for generating new myelin in the brain. And so those became really interesting to us because we knew myelin was really important for the disease. And so we we went and looked at the function of the genes in these regions and found that um, the ones that we think are acting in oligodendrocytes, that if you If you alter them, if you decrease how much gene product is made, then the cells no longer produce new myelin. Um, So we were uh, really interested in understanding how some people might be born with some genetic variants that make them not as strong in response to an immune attack. So we are sort of hypothesizing that these variants are affecting the efficiency in which your body can generate new myelin. And does that open up any new ways of understanding how MS works and uh, how to approach treating it? Yeah, that's always the hope, you know, that you're getting to, uh, to insights that will affect how we can actually treat um, or diagnose patients. Um, for MS, the majority of treatments are focused on blocking your immune system. So what they do is they prevent the immune system from interacting with the brain. And so that has been a very successful treatment um, strategy. It slows progression of the disorder, but it doesn't halt it. Um, And so what that's treating is further development of symptoms. It doesn't treat the symptoms the patients have already developed. Um, So if you could understand what aspects of the brain could be modulated in a way that's beneficial, um, you might imagine a combination therapy where you're both blocking the immune system and repairing the nervous system. Um, And so this is um, opening a door for a strategy like that um, to pursue um, making patients more efficient at generating myelin as well as preventing its damage in the first place. Are there other disease mysteries that you think are amenable to the outside variant method? Um, And is your lab doing any of this work right now? 
you know, there's a lot of diseases that we tend to think about only one part of the body at a time. Um, and when we think really deeply about how a disease works, most often is going to involve multiple cell types and multiple parts of the body. Um, so there's a number of easy examples. So if you think about like um, a cancer, for example, um, you might expect that a lot of genetic variants that cause your tumor are in the cell type that becomes the tumor, right? So if it's the colon, you might expect the it's the colon cell that's affected. Um, but more and more, we've learned about the importance of the immune system. You know, you can imagine a scenario where people have are born with uh, less ability to detect cancer cells, and their immune system is less is is less efficient, and that would put them at risk of developing a tumor. Um, and so trying to distinguish genetic variants that are affecting the cell type of origin of a cancer versus the immune system would be a really good um, next step. And we're starting to pursue some of that with breast cancer. Um, um, but other diseases we're looking at include substance abuse disorders, um, especially opioid use. Um, and so that is really an, a, a wide open question about what areas of the brain and what cell types in the brain are most critical to defining one's susceptibility to addiction. Um, and so we're starting to look at genetic risk factors and whether they affect glia, astrocytes, neurons. If it's more about the amygdala, more about the nucleus accumbens, we can start to make some of these distinctions by using our approach. You know, when working with data sets of this scope, I'm imagining it could be hard to know where to start or even how to sort through all the data. Yeah, you know, um, it's it's always a question for us was the, the data sets are, are huge. Um, so we can try to study all of the genetic loci of interest. We can just take a, a hammer approach, you know, and just sort of uh, try to go everything, or we can be um, a little bit more precise and look at loci that we have hypotheses for. Um, so more of a chisel approach. Um, so the way we do that is we, we look at a lot of publicly available data. So we'll um, look to see what genes are nearby, if there's any information about what those genes do, and if those are um, related to some of the published literature on the trait. Um, and sometimes we learn a lot by not trying too hard to make a hypothesis and just being really open-minded. You know, it's a lot of time on the computer, you know, so the compute time is quite long, uh, but we do get more novel results that way where we can um, find things we weren't necessarily expecting. One of the hardest parts for us is that we can apply this approach to any trait that we can get data for. So choosing the traits um, that are most valuable for our method um, is important. Um, and so we've really been focusing on uh, traits that we really think more parts of the body are involved but haven't been indicated yet by current studies. Um, so the classic example is sort of the cancer and the immune system, uh, but others as well, uh, where you might think that maybe more glia cells are involved, um, support cells in the brain, not just neurons. Um, and trying to find some of those nuances as well. So shifting gears a bit, how has COVID-19 affected work in your lab? Is there anything that has helped you continue pursuing your research? So yeah, COVID has caused everyone unique, unique challenges, uh, for sure. Um, we're in a, um, somewhat of a lucky position in that everybody, even our experimentalists in the lab, do some um, computational biology. Um, so we're able to keep pursuing new science um, from the computer. Um, we use a lot of data that's been published. So uh, it's led to some uh, interesting new creative ways to pursue um, projects that were stalled by um, the inability to do new experiments. Um, 
there's been some really funny Zoom calls um, where we're going back and forth about um, different projects and, and sharing screens and using the whiteboard function on, on, on these Zoom calls to draw what we're talking about. Of course, we miss uh, the in-person interaction. We're usually very um, ad hoc. You can sort of pull someone new into a conversation really easily. Uh, and so to sort of help us recreate that, we've um, adapted this uh, like two hour, um, we call it, you know, our highly focused time where everyone's available. Like at a drop of a dime between 1 to 3 p.m. every day, everyone is ready to jump on Zoom uh, or any other um, communication for immediate response. So it helps us to be like, oh, quick, let's pull someone into this conversation and get their advice. It helps a little bit with the, the feeling we're missing where we're all just in the same room. It's great to hear that. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as before, there are always new studies coming out and papers posted to preprint servers ahead of formal peer review. Sometimes it can feel like an onslaught of new data. If you're not a specialist in a particular subfield that a study is coming from, it can be hard to know whether you can trust the conclusions or not. So as a scientist, are there criteria you use to evaluate and sort through new research? Yeah. Well, yes. When you're looking specifically at scientific studies, um, you know, really pay attention to sample size. Um, you know, if there, if the number of people are looking at seems really low compared to the number of people who are affected by a trait, um, affected by COVID, then you know it's it's something you want to be cautious about um, interpreting. Um, another big warning sign is is big conclusions. Um, so science tends to happen in baby steps. Um, so you'll see. A lot of this may suggest, um, and that's actually a, a good sign. It means the researchers are recognizing that their data is supportive of a fact, but doesn't prove it in one study. Um, and so when you see warning signs, the title of the paper is really extreme, or if they say this proves, um, those can, can really lead you to question what you're looking at. Um, and then, you know, with even the preprints, you're going to find Twitter to have lots of scientists commenting. Um, on the paper, um, they'll see comments at the bottom of the preprint servers. Um, and a lot of times, you know, Twitter has, you know, it's got its pros and its cons. But if you're listening to scientists discuss a paper, if they're talking about it as a scholar, um, then you can start to use that as a test as well. Um, but when in doubt, um, bide your time and read the peer-reviewed version. Sometimes, you know, motivated patients or patient advocates dive into the primary literature to learn more about a condition, especially if it's a rare disease. Um, I'm wondering, for a person looking at info that's outside of their specialized training, uh, what kind of tools should they use to evaluate that information? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, I do it myself, you know, and I have my own, I, you know, I broke my foot recently and I Googled, you know, scientific papers about whether surgery is the right option or not, you know, and, and having the ability to distinguish um, is is important. Um, always Google the journal name. You know, if you're reading a paper that's on a peer, you, you know, that you think is a peer-reviewed journal, um, Google the journal name, make sure that it is um, something that is a recognized journal because um, there are, um, these sort of predatory journals out there um, that are publishing work but are not as rigorous at reviewing its content. I think it's all about um, trustworthiness of the source. So is this a website you recognize? Um, what information is on that website that you maybe you have more confidence on? Um, so you can sort of use that as a litmus test, like where they they claim that dinosaurs aren't real is a good, you know, those kind of, you can sort of see if there are other news stories 
um, have a high degree of validity um, as a starting point. And then look at the study themselves. And then if you find something questionable, Google it. You're going to get a mixed bag. Um, some people will agree with a particular statement, some won't, but you'll start to see trends um, and you'll see that what the reputability of the news source will be a really good indicator of whether or not that's particularly um, high powered um, study. So a really easy example is I had someone um, on one of the social media websites that I know post that COVID-19 meant that it was the 19th virus um, and they posted an article that said so. And so I Googled COVID-19 and found the CDC hit that says that, no, it's not the 19th COVID, it's the COVID virus that was discovered in 2019. Um, and so CDC.gov, that is a highly reputable source. And so you're able to verify a confusing fact like that immediately. And then every hit on the Google search underneath that is 2019, 2019. So um, I think it's um, sometimes you have to use a little bit of quantity to help you. If it's the only source claiming a fact, then it's really something you really want to dig deeper into. You can learn more about Olivia Corridan's research on our website at wi.mit.edu. Find past episodes of Audio Helicase and stay tuned for new ones by subscribing on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.